The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. And we're back with another episode of the Shaken and Stirred show, rearing to go once again. I'm Nigel Barker in New York, and I'm here with my co-host, Tom Astor in Oxford. How are you, mate? Yeah, nice. Yeah, good. All good here. Yeah, we thought spring had sprung the other day, and we're, um, we're uh, you know, gearing up for... Um, well, I'm not going to give anything away on the, uh, but we're gearing up for a new series that we're doing, which is a little different from what we've done before. But I, sorry if I stole your thunder, but I thought I'd get in there before you. But all good. No, I mean, in general, my life, yeah, everything great, nothing to complain about. How are you? Do you? Everyone out there is now thinking, what on earth are you talking about? A new series, a new this, a new that. Basically, we have a lot going on on the Shaken and Stirred show. There is a lot happening, a lot of movement, people. But before we even get there, I'm doing very well, Tom. Thank you. Um, yes, spring has sprung. I'm rather excited about our guest today. You know, we, we have had all kinds of guests on the show, but this week our guest could possibly be many things. Is he, in fact, a spy? We don't know. He might be an international spy. He is a man of mystery. He is a, a really something else, and he was going to be with us soon. But before we get there, we've got a few things. We've got some business to attend to. First of all, Tom, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a Cosmopolitan. Wow. I'm not drinking what you're drinking. I know you're going to drink because of having researched our guest and his passions. So I've stayed well clear of what you guys are going to be doing. I'm having Cosmopolitan because it's the color reminds me of um, somewhere, you know, in the Eastern Europe, the name I won't mention, certain color, red. And a cosmopolitan is a reflection of the world that our guest inhabits. Wow. There you go. How about that? that is very elusive. Do you like this? Are you getting this, everyone out there? You are you beginning to guess who our guest is? It's, it's incredibly cryptic. Well, this might be a, a better clue. I'm opening a bottle of champagne. I'm not just got a glass. Because you have to think about champagne. With a cocktail, you can just have a drink. But with the champagne, you're like, okay, I'm going to pop a bottle. I'm going to commit. Because you can't really, what are you going to do with champagne? You can't just let it sit, really, can you? So this is a bottle of Gallimard Reserve champagne. And it is a Cuvée de Reserve Blanc de Noir. And I'm going to pop it right now. So you're going to undo it. And I want to know, because our, our, our guest today, we kind of give it away a bit. It's a bit of a bit of an old champagne expert, to be honest. Now, twist, twist the bottle, not the cork. Oh, you there you go. Did you and, hear that? And it's all over your laptop. And it is all over my notes and my laptop, and I'm putting it away, and I'm going to have a little sip. And cheers, my friend. Cheers. Yeah, cheers, cheers, man. Boom. Cheers. Mm. Okay. Very, very I'll delicious. Well, I think it's time to move on to little booze news. Absolutely booze news time. And there's a lot happening in the world of booze at the moment. First of all, I mean, this, this whole idea that cocktails, and we, we've, we've been sort of fighting this a little bit, haven't we, Tom, about cocktails in a can for some time. It sort of goes against the whole bartending thing. Obviously, I get it, it's convenient. Everyone's doing it. And in the pandemic, over quarantine, it has become possibly one of the most popular things is, I guess, too, because you, there are no bartenders, really. And that's one of the issues right now is that, you know, if you want a mixed drink, you have to do it yourself. So these cocktails in a can have become very popular. And Crown Royale, the whiskey manufacturer. Hang on, hang on. Sorry, sorry, I'm going to stop you there. I mean, yes, they've become popular in a, during um, lockdown, but they were popular before. I mean, I, you know, there's nothing better than stopping on a road trip somewhere in a garage. I mean, I don't know if you can do this in the States and go into the service station. You can choose yourself a Pims or a, or a Cosmopolitan while I'm drinking, or you can get yourself a little cocktail for the for the road. You're one of the only people I know who constantly admits to drinking and driving. I mean, it's one of the most extraordinary things. I, think I, I've ever... I was driving. I was, no, I was on my own property, will be the next thing he says. Because somehow he has a sort of a, an off-license and, and a gas station in, on his property. Because Tom basically owns half of Oxford. For those of you who haven't gathered on the Shaken and Stirred show, my uh, landed gentry friend, uh, uh, Tom Astor, my co-host, simply likes to sort of, it seems to like drink and drive. but Actually, drinking and driving is a is a big no-no. I can categorically tell you that it's not a good idea and I do not condone it as a... Anyway, the whole point being here that there is a pand- has been a pandemic, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and 
Crown Royal are coming out with three new canned whiskey cocktails. One called the Washington Apple, the Peach Tree, and the uh, a whiskey cola, a sort of traditional one, I guess. But they're only seven seven percent proof, so you kind of have to do the whole four pack just to have one drink. And it, it retails at around fourteen ninety nine. That's dollars which is about the price of one whiskey cocktail if you were to go to a bar anyway. So I guess it makes sense. I'm just not sure that I want my whiskey out of a can. You know what I mean? I guess certain drinks doesn't seem to make much difference, but whiskey, I'm just not sure. Now on the same whiskey tip, in Scotland as well, a contractor called Craig Harrington was ripping up a kitchen, doing some kitchen work. And as he was doing so, he discovered a bottle of whiskey buried behind the actual wall with a note and uh, this note, and this is Perth, Scotland, and this little bottle of whiskey was a, a Glen Kinchy whiskey. And it said, there was a note with it that said, Jack and Mary lived here, three kids and a dog, kitchen done up, April, May, 2001. All the best, have a drink on us. Well, that's really sweet. Really sweet, isn't it? Now, same time, kind of odd, right? I guess they, as they were doing the construction work in 2001, they thought whoever comes in next might rip this kitchen out and they stuck a bottle of whiskey in there for the guy to find and and he did so and you know he took a video of this he put it on TikTok and it went viral and it's got sort of hundreds of thousands of views and what have you and uh, I think it's both interesting and also one of the things that terrified me was I thought first of all well 2001 that's not very long ago I thinking I was hoping it would be some sort of ancient bottle and then I realized that 2001 is in fact 20 years ago Funny you say that. When I was doing some work in my house, when I um, moved into my current house about 15 years ago or something, I, we uh, took a floorboard up upstairs and we found a, a very old box of Swan Vestas matches and in it there was a note and it was the name of the carpenter and he'd signed his name and explained he was the carpenter and given the date, which was 1897, which I thought was quite good. And then I trumped it a few months later. I was knocking a wall down in this kitchen garden bit outside, outside the back of my kitchen. And there was, I found a tin in the wall. And in the tin, there was a note saying, this wall was built by German POW. It's 1947. Wow. So there were German prisoner of wars who obviously stayed on two years after the end of the Second World War. They were, you know, obviously working the fields and stuff during the war and stayed on, you know, because there was nothing to go home for, I guess, in, in Germany. And then to top it all, I got these pillars, these old 18th century pillars on my farm, these quite grand pillars. And I was working up near them the other day and the sun was, was it was quite late in the day and the sun came around and I caught the shadow, it like created a shadow on the front of these pillars. And on the pillars, there was again, there was, they carved in this Germanic lettering, 19, German POW, 1947. And they'd obviously been up there doing some work in the fields or something. And they carved their name up there as well. It's rather amazing. And that, people, is how you one-up a story about someone finding whiskey in their kitchen. Well, from 2001, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Come on, that wasn't, that wasn't difficult. I mean, Christ, you know, by the time we get around to finishing this podcast series, I'm going to get a stick a bottle of whiskey somewhere now, and maybe someone will find it before we finish the series. Yeah? With that said, our guest today could be described as an international man of mystery, but the reality is he's just a true connoisseur. The owner of WineAdvise.com, an art dealer with the largest gallery operation on the East Coast of the USA. So he already sounds a bit like a, a spy when I say things like that, doesn't it? Uh, called DTR Modern Galleries, specializing in modern and contemporary art. He's published several stunning books on contemporary art and here to indulge us on the lush history of champagne in visual arts, please welcome Ted Vasilev. Ted, how are you? Hello, guys. How are you? So much fun being part of this thing. Thank you for thinking of me and introducing me the way you did, because that makes me feel more important than I am. <laughs> I don't believe that for a moment. Ted, yeah. by the way, cheers. I'm drinking a glass of champagne. You have a champagne bottle behind you. But before we get into the bottle behind you, what are you drinking? I'm doing Paul Roger in your guys, or the way they say in France, Paul Roger. And I'm going to talk about this when it, the right time comes. I'm going to dissect it. Now, I'm looking forward to the dissection. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. Cheers, 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 cheers. Fantastic. Mm. I'm not drinking champagne because I knew that Nige would be stupid enough to bring out a bottle of champagne, the name of which he's now going to tell you, and you're going to have to give your honest opinion. 
Oh no, we can di- we can dissect my drink later. I- I'm just you know, <laughs> we, we can't all be Ted. You know what I mean? We don't have, all have access to um, giant bottles of Dom Perignon painted yeah. behind them. By the way, which obviously one of the great things when we first started talking, Ted, about having you on the Shaken and Stirred show, you're one of these guests that you know you you live in the world of art. You're an art dealer, but you also have an incredible love of fine wine champagne specifically and this was something which is a bit of a passion project for you your love of champagne in art and we thought this would be a great conversation you're absolutely right because both of these are product children of passion and desire it is one of those things in we get you excited art excites me champagne excites me i don't get excited that much by vodka for example but it depends on the vodka, does it not? That it depends, and depends on the caviar that you take with the vodka. Can make it more acceptable. And it depends on who your bartender is too, right? I mean, you know, that is, there is, that is, that is correct. There are a lot that of variables here. Yeah, but the reason the reason I get excited by both and why they're my passion is you look at the art, and this is a visual indulgence. This is a visual consumption of of uh, of imagery, and you. Take the champagne glass and you see the sparkles, you see all these bubbles. And this is sexy, this is exciting. That's why I like both. I was thinking about the sort of questions and what, what, where we would go with our conversation. And you know, there are, there's so many different ways, but you, just right off the top there, you mentioned the yeah. fact sexy, right? And that is something which, yes. when did champagne, was champagne, and whether you know the answer, I don't know, but has champagne always been considered sexy? When did it first? be literally considered sexy. Bearing in mind, and you'll put me right if I'm wrong about this, bearing in mind it was invented by monks, I wasn't originally. It was not supposed to be sexy, period. No, that's not. <laughs> well, let's start with first, what is champagne? It means two things. Champagne is part of France, and it's a region. And champagne is the wine they produce there, which happens to be bubbly, sparkling, and it's the only one called champagne. A lot of people are confused about that, and they call every sparkle champagne, which is wrong. Clearly. Yeah, not to say that they're not great uh, Proseccos or Cavas or any other kind of uh, sparkling wines, but they're not champagne for a number of reasons. I remember it was a great thing. You're going to see it later in the visuals. I had a dinner with uh, some friends and colleagues, and we're having uh, champagne and oysters, and we're in Saint-Tropez. And at some point, the champagne kind of finished, and we still had oysters. And I went to the uh, waiter and asked him, well, we need some more champagne. And the guy was, I'm sorry, we don't have, it just finished. And I said, well, give me the other champagne. Don't give me the best. I said, no, we're just fresh out of champagne. No champagne left. I said, what do you have? He said, well, I have some sparkling wine. We have some Prosecco. And I said, okay, give me some dry Prosecco. And we're finishing this. And I'm serving this to my friends and guests. And without telling them what this was exactly. And at some point, one of them was, hmm, this tastes differently. And I said, yeah, slightly different, but it's still dry. And he said, well, it's just different. It doesn't have this taste. It doesn't have the complexity of that. It doesn't have the sexiness, not with those words. And I said, I'm sorry, guys. I do apologize. But they ran out of champagne. And this is a Prosecco. So this couple looked at each other and said, but we love Prosecco. And I said, you're the difference. You love Prosecco. But once you had the champagne, you have the Prosecco after that, you can make the difference. Not that, that doesn't mean to say that they're not great Proseccos, but just a different wine. So going back to the Champagne story, uh, a beautiful region that is outside of Paris, about 145 kilometers, roughly 90 miles south, uh, northeast of Paris, which creates a great proximity. And it was back in the uh, uh, 1600s when the monks primarily, were experimenting with uh, fermenting the local grapes in order to compete with Bordeaux. However, the process of fermentation is very strict and you have to follow certain rules. Temperature in particular is very important. 
And what they are not able to do because of the harsh winters, they weren't able to control that. And what started happening is the bottle, the bottles of champagne started exploding mm. as a result of uh, uh, the chemical reaction that takes place between the sugars and the eats that uh, brings carbon dioxide, which is the carbonation. But once this happened the first time, they realized there's different quality into that because this you, you're not going to compete with Burgundy with the grapes that you have in Champagne. It's just they're different. How about we capitalize on that and come up with a new drink? And this was where Dom Perignon comes as the first one. The way he put it, come quickly, I'm tasting the stars. And he was, and that's the legend. Nobody knows exactly what happened, but this is, this is the legend. He started managing, playing with the idea of the bubbles and how to control it, how to improve the whole thing. And the British are very fast on that because they had something similar prior to that. And while the French at this time were not very appreciative until early 1700s, the British started buying it and started enjoying it. So in a way, the consumption there and the demand was more British than it was French. And the French started really appreciating this uh, since the early 1700s, 1715. Uh, Louis XIV was the first one that started serving this at the big uh, at the Palais Royal, the big uh, gatherings, the salons, and the aristocracy followed up. And the champagne turned into a, uh, a choice of leisure, a uh, show of power, and a sign of indulgence. Sorry, can I just quickly go back? When you just said it was interesting because the English kind of, the English demand for the champagne kind of created, created this, you know, the, the English demand created you know the, the the market in France for champagne. Yeah, that's the same with Bordeaux, though. I mean, isn't it? I mean, we the English. I mean, we've even got our own. You know, claret is an English word. I mean, we've you know, and are we not the main buyers of claret? And same with port, I suppose, in Portugal, we're the main. We were the main buyer. Dow's all these English companies. That, that is absolutely correct. I, uh -huh. I couldn't agree more, but. Uh... We should really give them the credit because it's in France and it's done by French. <laughs> so after that, uh, it is the English, the Russians, and the Americans that create the market and the demand for that. Ted, Ted, you're speaking to two Englishmen here. We're never going to give the French the credit, not even for okay. their own drink like champagne <laughs> or port or, or claret or anything else. We're going to take as much credit as we can, where we can, especially when it's offered to us on a plate yeah. like you just did, Ted. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. That's the reason why. That's the reason why I selected the Paul Roger for the selection for the testing. Thank you for calling it Paul Roger. By the way, I mean I don't think yeah. I, I, that made me laugh just in itself. You know, I, I, English people struggle to say the name of all these drinks like Paul Roger, and, and they just try and say it because if if you go to France and say it, the Frenchman will yeah. just look at you and, and just sort of like, yeah. "What did you and, just say?" Like sacrilege. Yeah, plus plus Paul is misspelled. <laughs> well, you know, they meant they meant to say pole, but you know, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole different kind of dance altogether. Yeah. Now well, let's not go into discussion then. <laughs> but yeah, so going back to the history, Champagne became very popular through the aristocracy back in the 17th century, 18th century. It was served on all kind of uh, royal functions and uh aristocracy gatherings. Then we had the Napoleonic Wars, and unfortunately for uh, the French people, uh, they were not going to be able to really enjoy this for quite some time because uh, the Russians came with the troops and pretty much occupied France. That's what was happening. But luckily for Champagne, they got exposed to the wine, and that happened through Madame Clicquot, which is one of the largest Champagne houses in Champagne. And uh, that was in the uh, early 1800s, towards the end of the Napoleonic Wars, where everybody was trying to hide their champagne, the small houses. And she realized uh, wisely that they're going to get it anyway. Why don't I market it and offer it to them so that they can appreciate, which she did. And her famous saying is, you drink now and you're going to pay later, which exactly happened that way. I don't know if this was a brilliant marketing strategy, or it was uh, a, a sign of despair, or they're gonna take it anyway, why don't I offer it? 
Because what happened with the last cases that she had after they retreated back to Russia, she put them on a ship and uh, defined the embargo, the French embargo, uh, exported them to Russia. And this is when uh, Zara Alexander and the entire royal court got exposed to that. And they started purchasing and buying and drinking and enjoying, serving in all kinds of functions. So the demand for champagne, not necessarily the appreciation, but the demand for champagne in the entire 19th century up to the Russian Revolution was entirely Russian-driven. They were the main market. So do you think a lot of it then has to do with the, obviously the, the, the taste, the bubbles, it's all very exciting, but it's also the sort of the whole pomp and ceremony of opening a bottle of champagne, right? The, of course. The whole thing is, is ceremony. Yeah, it, it is sexy and exciting. And you see the bottles. The moment you put the bottles in your glass, one bottle that is uh, uh, 70, 70, 50 millimeters uh, contains approximately 50 million bubbles. 50 million. That's a lot of bubbles. Do you know something? When you just said, when you open a bottle of champagne, it's sexy and exciting. Actually, I just watched Nigel open his and it wasn't. It was like worrying and um, alarming, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I see that your champagne is kind of flat. Hmm? It looks flat. It's, look, you know, Nigel's champagne looks to be kind of flat. So when yeah. you do start uh, 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 tasting the uh, Paul Roger, I'm going to open a new bottle. So I'm not going to go with the old one. So now he's just trying to count the bubbles now to see if he's got 50 million or whether he's like... I, I was going to say, I was trying to count, but I fell asleep. And, I, and I'm not sure yeah. whoever counted the first the first 50 million in the last lot, but that definitely had to be a Frenchman because no Englishman sitting there counting bubbles. I'm telling you that is all I can say. Definitely a French move. So listen, this whole pomp and ceremony aspect, and it's very interesting, royal families, you know, this history of loving this sparkling wine at the same time obviously which is champagne or were there other places in the world at that time that were that, that wanted it and just couldn't get it because the russian royal family wanted it or the english royal family wanted it or was it very specific just the russians were into it and people hadn't really spoken about it because obviously back then the communication wasn't the same so if, if someone discovers something i think it was an acquired taste and i think that also the 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 uh quantity of champagne produced there was much less than what is nowadays. For you to get the idea, uh, I don't know exactly because I don't think there's any data on that, but the global market of champagne nowadays is only $6 billion, which is nothing. Technically, is nothing. Uh, this is a combination of the Chrysler building, the Waldorf Astoria, and the Plaza Hotel in New York City. They are cumulatively three billion. So this gives you an idea. You said you do understand that Waldorf Astor, that the Waldorf Astoria is named after, is uh, Tom's relative. This is the reason I brought it up. <laughs> so you're, you're not worth much, Tom, is my point. You're, 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 basi you're basically chicken feed over there with that small poxy, like a bottle of champagne, no. mate. Pop, no, all excitement. Honestly, he's worth a third of the annual global demand for champagne, which is not bad at all. What are you saying that these hotels make up for that? No, the value of the hotel's property is the same value of the world trade on champagne in one year, $6 billion. I'm just comparing something which is popular known real estate to champagne. I'm just comparing the size of the two markets. Yeah, wow, 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 wow. Which actually, what I would say there, Tom, is is your your consumption alone on champagne probably equates to about <laughs> that. What well, one of those sections are right there, anyway? I think it's I a, think I think you probably uh, of a period of time definitely drank the royal uh, Astoria suite. It's all all <laughs> I'm thinking is that you know, great thing about champagne is you can carry on making it, carry on selling it, but you know, you can only sell your hotel once. I can't think who owns the Waldorf Astoria now. Uh, is the Chinese. Oh, yeah. See, exactly. So there we go. So I've just actually plunged me into a sort of state of depression. If I go quiet now, you'll know why. <laughs> Please don't. I, I didn't mean... I wanted actually to cheer you up with this, not to depress you. <laughs> so go, go along with this, this history lesson. This history lesson is great. So we've got through to the Russian... I guess the, the Rus Russian court are drinking it. Mm -hmm. Does it explode across Europe, literally? 
I mean, honestly, 20th century has been uh, very much uh, in between France, became also probably the largest in terms of per capita consumption place, the UK and the US. After the war, a good chunk of the consumption moved to uh, the US. But what the funny thing is, because we're talking about the relations and the correlation, if you want, that exists between uh, the champagne and the art and the demand or the driving forces behind that. It's funny that the Brits and the Russians were behind champagne. Look at the art. It weren't definitely the, the French. They were enjoying it and serving it and, and, and making it happen. Look at the fine arts. Uh, if you look into the modernism, which is probably the most popular uh, movement, along with pop art, post-war American, but throughout definitely the first half of the century to early 60s, entire modernism, although originated generally in France and in Paris with uh, uh, artists such as Picasso, Matisse, Braque, name all of them, was to a large extent driven and the patrons of this new development were again Russians and Americans. They weren't French, which is a very interesting thing. That's why one of the best modern collections in the world are the collections of Shukin and Morozov that got, that got confiscated by the uh, uh, Russian state and the collections that are in the US, uh, such as uh, uh, the Barnes collection or Alfred Barr that bought all this stuff at the Museum of Modern Art or Gertrude and Leo State, major collectors and major contributors to this great movement. Their, their patronage pretty much created the market for these artists. And same goes for Champagne. It's, it's, it's strange. I'm, I'm going back to your French uh, remarks. It's in interesting, though. I mean, obviously, clearly art is, has been such a commodity over the years and something that... We, one was it was hard to know that it would be so successful over the years. And similarly, you know, something like champagne, one wouldn't have known that it would have taken off in the way that it did on an international level. And it's basically the drink of celebration, right? It is. It is not just a. Whereas wine or whatever, you may open a bottle at any given time and have it for lunch. But the champagne is, if you're having a party, if you're having a celebration, if you're having a wedding, even if you're having a funeral, you may well open champagne, right? That's a great point. And it started with Napoleon. And then it was echoed by Churchill. And what they both, bottom line, what they say is, a champagne is the drink when you deserve winning the war. Or champagne is the drink to have when you lost, you needed them. It's both the pick-me-up and the celebration. Everybody happy at the end of the day. It, it's champagne all around, no matter what's going on, basically. Yeah, and, and, if yeah. you, and if you're a European, you may well have a glass of champagne at breakfast, which is quickly catching on over here in the United States, <laughs> most good hotels, yeah. as we've all, all experienced. But this correlation with wine and art, I mean, it's champagne and art specifically, there's a, a sort of, if you look at, and you've, you mentioned various artists, and, and no doubt, if you look, if you think certainly with pop art and what have you, Lichtenstein and, you know, Warhol or whoever it might be, that they have glamorized and, and painted champagne bottles, glasses of champagne. It, it, it's, it's, and it's all a part of that, I guess, that pop in your face. I mean, literally, it's called pop art, right? And then you have yes. the, the popping of the champagne. It's all, it all kind of goes together. You get the enthusiasm, the excitement, and the, the sex appeal, like the sex yes, in the art. Not to mention that at this point, champagne gets egalitarian. It's much more affordable than back in 100 years ago. But going back really 100 years ago, 1880s, 90s, the Belle Epoque, the artists that were working, Pierre Bonnard or Toulouse-Lautrec, they glamorized it through their posters, which were, especially Toulouse-Lautrec, this is a piece of art, this is not advertisement. And they depict this, they get excited by the object of depiction, which is the champagne. And the champagne was the thing, even the thing that you would uh, uh, do at uh, Moulin Rouge or 
uh, Folie Berger, all, all the, uh, the cabarets and uh, salons. Even if you look into Manet, who is the first probably modern artist in the real dawn of modernism or the last symbolist, he has an incredible uh, picture that you're going to see in uh, the uh, visual material, which depicts a barmaid trying to serve people. You see nobody trying to serve people uh, champagne with uh, a number of champagne bottles. She's obviously tired. She's kind of exhausted. She doesn't care about these rich people that are paying the money. And behind her, there is a mirror. And one of the uh, interpretations is that the image that you see on the right corner is a self-portrait of Manet. So it's this really interesting correlation and play between these two uh, things that are uh, taking place at the same time. But I just wanted to do a few things because a lot of people are not familiar with basic things like when you get a bottle of champagne and look at the label. Some people don't know how to read the label, although it's really clearly set what is on the label. So I'd like to indulge you guys. Indulge? Yeah, and do a few explanations. I'm sure you know most of that. But uh, there are a few types of champagne. You have uh, the vintage champagne, which is normally associated with the single year in which the champagne is produced. And then you have the non-vintage champagne, which is champagne that is uh, produced and made from uh, different years of wine. I love this. This is the right approach. What are you having there again? I am drinking right now. He's talking about, I'm pouring myself another glass, everyone out there. I'm drinking a bottle of uh, Gallimard. So good. Is it Blanc de Blanc or is it a blend? It's a Blanc de Blanc. Blanc de Noir. Blanc de Noir. Good. So that being said, and, and it says Cuvée. So people don't sometimes understand what it is, but that's basically the blend that you, you're getting. They tell you you're buying a blend, which is most of the champagne in general. And then you have the Blanc de Blanc, which is uh, predominantly made out of Chardonnay, the grape Chardonnay. I personally prefer, and that's really personal choice, uh, the blends that are a combination of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Noir. These are, to my taste, the best. And it doesn't really matter who makes them. Or, what uh, uh, the house is. I have my favorite one, but I also will take any that has this over, let's say, Blanc de Blanc. And another few labels that are also interesting, like Brut, people don't realize that that's actually the, the dry style, the dry style of Champagne, or extra Brut is bone to dry, or sack is kind of uh, dry, but it's getting sweeter. So these are, when you get your label, oh, what did I get? Or what is my taste? This is pretty much with the art. You've got to read the labels. With the art, you look at the art up front and you read the label on the back. Normally, the label on the back tells you more than the front. Because these are auction records, these are uh, history of ownership, exhibition history, et cetera, et cetera. If you have this, I'm talking primarily secondary market, of course, that tells you much more than the front. Except, of course, if you don't like the front, you don't really care about the back, do you? Exactly, exactly. This is, this is why I wanted to talk about the notion of you know, collecting, because you approach this from standpoint of passion, standpoint of appreciation. And why collecting? You do collecting art and collecting champagne is not much different because the same principles apply to the whole thing. Like the art, you're looking at the artist, in the case of Champagne, that will, that's going to be the brand. Do you like Picasso over Chagall or Warhol? Or do you like uh, Dom Perignon over Crook or Cristal? That's a choice. One is a visual choice. The other one is gastronomic choice. And while building a collection, you apply these two principles. Because with putting in this, you put money. And you pursue particular principles in which it's not a, a simple, simple buying of this and of that. You organize it because you love it, A, visually or gastronomically, 
And then you want to have a consistency of what you're putting into the whole thing. Because if you start buying left and right, the total value of your collection without being consistent is going to be much less. And it's going to be less than the value of the single pieces than the total value of all this group of pieces. So you buy something for a dollar, which is bought left and right without the principle like consistency. After that, you're going to be probably looking at uh, the same dollar if you're looking at in all residual value of 75 cents. But if you buy with the idea that this is a collection you're building, let's say, around the notion of pop art, and you buy uh, Warhol, Liechtenstein, Nainos, this dollar is going to be worth $5 as a collection. So this is another principle that gets into the whole thing. Fascinating. It's all very fascinating. You know, I, I think that certainly what one of the things that interests me the most is this the the interest in the artists themselves in actually wanting to paint champagne or or, or depict champagne in their in their art as if that were that people were, you know, because you mentioned earlier in one of your comments how Toulouse-Lautrec, for example, how perhaps it it's not marketing or it wasn't advertising, it was simply they drew champagne in their in their work. But it did, regardless of that act and it still does act as an incredible advertisement for champagne no doubt about this and it originally started as an active depiction and at some point people realized that it's an incredible marketing tool that became very appealing during the late pop time when Dom Perignon commissioning artists like you have Liechtenstein a great example that you will see uh, in individuals and he did, using his typical visual language of pop art, the coloration, the frivolity of the line in image, the notion of the comics uh, uh, imagery, you had it there. Then going uh, uh, later, you see, you have, like for example, Jeff Koons. And you're going to see this into the, probably one of the most successful and popular and influential contemporary artists. Again, Don Perignon with the depiction of the Boondocks, one of the most iconic pieces. So you have two iconic brands that get married. When, when an artist does something like that, they do a collab- this is a collaboration, does that not go against the gist of art itself when you're being paid by a brand to perhaps collaborate like that? When, when champagne comes up, isn't, doesn't it then become, I mean, it's one thing when Toulouse-Dautrec goes, okay, I like champagne, I'm including it in my art. It's another thing when an artist is approached by a brand and they say, you know, we'd like you to paint a champagne bottle and it becomes sort of popular. It's, it's not quite the same thing, is well, it not? Well, well, no, let me tell you. I'm uh, so glad you brought up this question. How about Warhol or Jeff Koons goes to the brand, the champagne brand, and said, guys, I'm going to make you more popular than you are because I have much following that you do. I think it's a two-way street. Yeah, but it can work. It's also, it could be a bit more civilized. Well, I would say civilized. We look at Mouton, Rothschild, you know, they, they commissioned artists to put their work on their labels, which is probably, I don't know, do I see that as a bit more of a sophisticated approach? Well, no, uh, actually, I think this is a very uh, happy marriage because it's uh, a marriage of visual and gastronomic indulgence. And I see this as this collaboration as furthering. It, I don't see that much as a market. Of course, there's the marketing effect there. You know? but I see is adding value to the final product or stage of development. I do have uh, a few bottles still left and that you, you brought it up, uh, 82, uh, Moton Rothschild, which is the first mega year of Bordeaux. One is by Chagall, and he's trying, when in this, he's trying to incorporate things that are typical for Bordeaux. The other one is by John Houston, the director, who also happened to be an artist. Yeah, and I got 90s. I got baked, Francis Bacon on my 1990 Mouton. But I mean, the, point, the, the thing being, though, that it's more of a kind of a, it's less of a commercial, you know, it's collaboration for sure, obviously. You know, you're not, you're going to still, something like Mouton, you're going to buy Mouton anyway because it's Mouton, because it's, it's, a, it's a seriously good wine. They don't need to stick bacon on the, on the label, I guess. Whereas what you're saying with the champagne, Concept with the, if I if I got this right is is that champagne have used artists more to 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 enhance and promote their product, whereas something I guess like Mouton 
they don't really need to pr- pr- promote their product because it's basically, you know, it gets sold, it's sold out. I mean, you know, they sell it all anyway. That is true. That is true. But let me tell you, same, same for uh, Jack Koons. There's nothing on the market. Basically, you go and commission the work because there's nothing available. Yeah, another way of looking at it, yeah. Except for the fact that, obviously, with, with some of the wines, and for example, I think that you're, you know, you're referencing and they're putting the, these artists on the label. Like you said, it's this sort of collaboration of just what works, right? But when it comes to something that's so much a celebratory drink, when it's something that's a drink that is connected to parties and connected to what going out and connected to the whole, that aspect of it, we are now in a world where, for example, cocktails are, are, are become a part of the, the story, right? So, and other liquors with advertising and marketing budgets and you know, parties are thrown and hosted by other big companies. Like, you know, you can go to a party and it's all of a sudden hosted by cognac, for goodness sake. And you're like, who really yeah, wants yeah. to drink cognac at a party? It's like sort of going to bed after with the cigar kind of drink. You know, it's sort of, yet- yeah, It is they, a cigar kind of drink. Right, so, but, but they host parties in New York City, which are sort of raves almost, right? So there is, you can see where the competitive nature starts to come in with these companies where they're like, well, actually, we do need to appear cool. Champagne shouldn't be some stodgy old drink. It has to, everything has to remain current. So it was kind of genius for them to have pop artists and cool artists, goons, whoever it might be, Liechtenstein, Warhol, depict their alcohol, right, in, in their art, because it may, immediately makes them cool. Um, right now, the most popular still living artist is Yoro Kusama. I mean, everything that she does is pre-sold. It sells like you go and try to get a ticket. I was just getting a ticket for the New York Botanical Garden and they have limited amount of tickets. So for two hours, they sell hundreds of thousands of tickets and that's it. When was the last time you're gonna have a waiting line for somebody to go and see art, her art in the Botanical Garden. And it's her typical uh, iconic style that Don Pignon implied and you're gonna see this individual. So I see it more like a two-way street, honestly. She did a collaboration yeah. with um, Vive Clicquot, right? Recently too, Kusama, because she, there oh, was no, a- Sorry, sorry, Vive Clicquot, I met Vive Clicquot, not uh, Dr. Right, exactly, exactly. So, I, and, I, and I'm aware, and I actually tried to buy some of the bottles when they came yeah. out and you couldn't get them. The moment they, they taught, they, exactly. they sort of, they announced this, this collaboration, I immediately went to buy a couple of bottles and they were gone. They were already sold before they even announced it. Yeah, which proves my point that Vufplico needs Kusama. Kusama doesn't need Vufplico. Whereas something like, let's say, going back to border, you know, Clara, Laffy, it's pre-sold, you can't get it. I mean, you know, there's, everyone's, you know, it's gone. And it doesn't matter, it's such a good wine, it doesn't really matter. You know, you're not going to get a bad year. It's going to be good, whatever the year, right? Some are going to be spectacular, some are going to be good. But the point is, it's all gone, very difficult to get your hands on it. Buy it as you, in the second in the secondary market, as you say. You know, if you haven't, if you're not on the list, now that's because you know there is, you know, Lafitte can produce a finite amount of wine, right? Um, now, if the Chinese cool. come in and start going, oh crap, yeah, we, we we you know, hang on a minute, we'll pay you a bit more for that. We we love this stuff. We you know, especially love it with a bit of Coca Cola. But they're <laughs> buying it in, so you know, it's supply and demand. Champagne. Is there a finite uh, production? Uh, you know, is there a limit on how many bottles can be physically produced? Talk about the big names, the, you know, Dom Perignon's, you know, the top, the top champagne houses. Are they diluting the product or is it kind of a good thing to keep this, you know, keep it limited? The entire champagne is left roughly 42,000 hectares and 24 approximately is the amount of vineyards, you just cannot really expand it and it's a supply and demand market because there's only so many vineyards. And one of the reasons for the uh, non-vintage is that because not every year is good and they cannot really uh, satisfy the demand of the market. That's why you have the the, the concept of the non-vintage in which you blend pretty much uh, wines from different years so that you can satisfy the market. And due to the physical uh, limitation of the territory that they have and the amount of grape, there is definitely serious ceiling that they can, even if they want it, they cannot do because right. they have control over the type of grape and the territory. But can I, sorry, it's really interesting. I mean, what you just said, 
if I bought a bottle of Verve Clicquot, you know, non-vintage Verve Clicquot this year, and, you know, delicious as it is, that you'll say, that is a blend. That if it's a non-vintage thing, that is going to be a blend of different years. Yeah, it's going to be a blend of a few years because of the process of fermentation, and uh, it's already one, and they're blending it. And uh, normally, depending on... Uh, depending on what year they use and what is the better grape, they're going to have the better grape in this particular non-vintage blend. Right. So it could be, like I said, my favorite is uh, a third of each of the three grapes, but sometimes they don't have enough. And the, the, the better grape is, this only can do better with the better wine. And it's going to be a different combination. So it's a hit and miss. So if I have a bottle of non-vintage Verve Clicquot this year, um, you know, and I just and I put it away, put it somewhere, and I and I wait, you know, next year in a year's time, I buy another bottle of Verve Clicquot and drink, you know, do a taste test. I mean, I've literally never thought about this actually, uh, and I do a taste test. They are going to taste. I mean, if you know, if they are, unless they obviously come from the same barrel, you know, barrel. Yeah. If they've been, they're going to taste differently. They're going to taste differently. They're going to taste different. Yeah. They're going to taste differently, including in a situation in which uh, uh, you buy uh, vintage versus non-vintage. Clearly, the vintage is going to taste much better. But I mean, sorry, obviously, I was going to say, obviously, they're going to taste different because, you know, you know, different years and different the sun and all that and the ripening and all, all the rest of it. But the thing about the vintage is you apply a year to it. So with wine... Only of this year, yeah. Vintage is only the year. And technically, the wine that is still drinkable it's from the 80s, but it's already getting, the champagne is still drinking of the 80s, but it's getting already downhill. For my personal taste, the peak is around 30 years. Everything between 30 and 35 goes down after that. Ideally, you want to have it between 20, like the vintage stuff, between uh, 20 and 25, but it's a personal taste again. And going back into history, I have 82 Dom Perignon, and I have 85 Dom Perignon. 85, you can still drink. 82, you can. So I keep it as a souvenir. And then you have 88 and 89, which are still drinkable. Of course, in the 90s, the best year is 96, above and beyond. This is probably one of the best post-war years ever. And then 2000 is very strong, and 2002. 2008, and you have nothing between 2008 and nowadays. So that gives you, it's, it's a limited market, honestly. And here's the thing, the commonality between the art market and the champagne market. You need to satisfy this market because there's demand. People want to have it. A vintage champagne would compare to more desirable artwork. I'm talking about vintage of one champagne versus champagne and artist. One champagne house, one artist. And the vintage would be the work that the artist produces such as painting or drawing, which is one of one. And for the champagne will, will be the vintage year, which let's say is uh, 2000, a very strong year. The non-vintage will translate into the language, and of course this is very general, will translate into the language of the art market as multiples or prints, because the, yeah, the market needs access, the market can afford, the market demands it. And what do you do? Well, there's only so much paintings I can do. And that's why there are the multiples. But they're still the same brand. Same Dom Perignon, same Jeff Koons. What makes a good champagne? You mentioned these years. And, and clearly, obviously, the, we, we, you know, we enjoy the flavor. What is it about the, that year? What was up with the weather? What was up with the, with the, the weather? Primarily, it's primarily the weather, humidity. Are we seeing with global warming and stuff, Ted? With global yeah, there warming, there are changes. Are there, so, what's going on? I mean, what talk to us about that well, because it, it, that's interesting. Well, I, well, I'm not a scientist. It's very difficult, but I can tell you that if you look back into uh, the 70s and 80s, you have much more vintage years in which the grape is primarily very good, and you can really do vintage out of the year. You don't have to mix them up. Look at the 90s. You only have one year the 90s, which is 96. And between 2000 and 2021, uh, 21 is you have three. So this tells you something already. No, it's, it's fascinating. I think that is actually very telling in itself. And, and I tell you what, nice. I tell you, sorry, I'm going to add to that. It is what is even more telling to add to that is England, 
in these sort of these sparkling wine competition. I don't know if they're competitions, but a lot of English sparkling wines in various taste tests are coming out on top and winning medals over established champagne houses. Obviously, they can't call themselves champagne. But I mean, what's telling about that is I don't, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if the English should be. You, you, you mentioned Ted earlier on in the, in the, in the podcast that the English were, were, were busy making sparkling wine when the monks were sort of when you know just exactly. at the same time. Exactly. I mean, it was it was pretty much uh, the same time. There was uh, overlapping time in some instances. The English uh, before that, and sometimes the French managed to do it better over a period of time, like 20, 30 years. Everything took place in the uh, mid-1660s. But going back to your thing, I also enjoy very much English sparkling wines. I enjoy them because they're complex, they're dry, and their finish is really, it's so fresh. Even if they're dry, there's fruitiness in that. This is what I enjoy. There are certain things that I don't enjoy because you don't have enough, the fermentation process is a complicated process, and the sugar, in the grape comes as a result of the difference of the temperature between the night and the day and the soils. And you don't have this in England. Yeah. What you need for the sugar uh, of the grape is big difference of temperature between the day and the night. The day you need hot and dry. You need cold nights and amplitude that really can create the sugar. And you don't get this in England. It's wow, interesting. I didn't know. I mean, England, you just have miserable weather all the time, actually. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. that, which, which maybe, you know, maybe that's its own type of thing. I, I mean, th- th- listening to what you're saying, I mean, I'm playing sort of from an, if trying to be sort of as ignorant perhaps as, as I can be on this. If you were to take the soil out of the ground in France, in Champagne, literally ship it to, I don't know, a, a mountain region or a hilly, hilly region in South America and put the same soil down and in, a, in an area pretty much replicates you know, France. Could you make something that's almost identical if it's the same soil, if it's the same grape, if it's the same? What, no, I mean, it's the climate. It's, it's the climate. Again, the problem, the problem with this soil is secondary. Then, I mean, it's very important, but it's uh, the sun the temperature during the day and the temperature during the night. That's a factor number one. Because in the UK, you don't have that. But maybe with the global warming, you can push. <laughs> You're turning already, London is turning already into Caribbean capital in terms yeah. of temperature. Well, we're winning medals. <laughs> we're suddenly winning medals. You know, the monks have been trying, we are monks have been trying for hundreds of years. And suddenly we're in the French. Maybe we just didn't, you know, maybe we have got the, 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 odd, the odd kind of, you know, maybe it is warming up. Well, I thought yeah. immediately when you told me that the English were responsible for, for enjoying champagne in the first place, I'm thinking that's because England likes everything bubbly, whether it's bubble and squeak or whether it's just food rotting. Normally, anything that's rotting or bubbling is, is something that's very popular in England. So no surprise that champagne was a huge hit. Actually, that, that was going to be the name of our show, Bubble and Squeak, but we started on Shaken and Stirred. I love that. Yeah, and you'll be surprised, guys. I love your show and uh, the premise uh, behind the title and the concept. But I was doing some research, and it is turning out the famous phrase is Marti, shaken, not, not stirred. However, right. throughout the entire uh, franchise, without advertisement, James Bond holds in his hand more champagne glasses than martini glasses. That's true. That's very true. But also, the other thing is, you know, he also, most the cocktail he likes shaking should actually be stirred. Well, but we know the story behind that. There's no, the story behind that is, in fact, that so the very first martini that James Bond drinks is a Vespa, right? Which is a gin vodka mix with Lillet, right? And, and that was named after one of the guys, that one of the villains. But the idea being that it was shaken, not stirred, was, in fact, that he was trying to dilute his martini with the ice so that he would be less drunk than the person he was going out to fight. So he was trying to one-up the guy by shaking it, making it a bad drink and diluting his martini. But Thank you very much. I'm a, I'm a fan of James Bond. I will have nothing said bad you know, about it. Ted, the thing is, if I can get nice to repeat himself, I better remind him afterwards that we've already covered this. Anyway, you can't imagine James Bond in, a, in the latest production going up to the bar and asking for an English sparkling wine. 
I mean, I, could, I can I, I, I can that's, see him going to the bar one. and ordering a glass of champagne. But I mean, going up and ordering a, that English sparkling wine, that particular one from Kent, I like. Yeah, just yeah. So I think that's a long way off. Being cool. You know what? It is time for on the Shaken and Stirred show. Last orders, which Ted is us pushing you on the spot to ask you five quick questions where you are going to answer it's straight from the heart. Are you ready, Ted? Absolutely, all the time. All the time. That's what I thought. I thought, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, international man of mystery. We were wondering whether you could even be potential, you know, secret agent or spy because of your art dealing and champagne knowledge and all the rest of it. We were romanticizing Ted's potential, you know, past history. Ted, Ted Vasilev. How did you say it, Tom? Vasilev. Vasilev. I love it when he says it. Yeah. I don't know. Vasilev. Vasilev. I don't know. I have no idea. Sounds, well, sounds very encouraging. It's a good okay. try and very encouraging. Here we go, Ted. Your last meal, what would it be? Uh, we're going to have East Coast oysters, preferably Massachusetts, with black beluga caviar on top, a little bit of shallots, uh, a few drops of lemon, and uh, a, a glass of uh, Cristal. Wow. There you go, people. That's the way you do it. On death row, if you're wondering if you have a last meal... That was a pretty grim question. I mean, seriously, you know, like... Any choose any meal. Like, what's your best birthday meal? Not what's your last bloody meal? What's your night? There you go, mate. Last meal. That's what came to me. If you could have done anything else in your life, you're a man who's doing extraordinary things. What what would it have been if you weren't an art dealer, wine expert, champagne? If there was a something else, some other life you could have led, Ted. I don't know what I have done, but I can tell you what I wouldn't have done. And this is I wouldn't have become a dentist. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, you know what? If you live in England, that's the same thing. We don't have any dentists, certainly. In the movie of your life, Ted, who would you have play you? I would have uh, young uh, DiCaprio playing young Ted. Uh, mid-age, I would have Anthony Craig. And for old Hopkins, definitely. I just wondered how Leonardo DiCaprio turns into Hopkins. But anyway, that's, that's an interesting one in the movie. Yeah, he's also, he wouldn't be able to play, he wouldn't be able to play very accurately. He's, he doesn't drink. Well, the thing is, uh, this shows a very diverse, diversified and multi-level personality. Okay. <laughs> okay. What floats your boat and what gets your goat? I get uh, very much uh, uh, motivated by achieving something just by making things happen. To me, uh, is to make something happen. And I have to hit it, I have to make it. And I get upset when I do stuff and things are not happening and the fault is not mine. In either of these cases, somebody has to come and clean after me because I'm a big picture guy and I make a lot of mess. Love it. <laughs> That's a great answer. Um, and the very final question, which we ask all people on Shaken and Stirred, is Ted shaken or stirred? If I have to go, I'm going to go with stirred, honestly, because it's easier. You got to have the blender. You gotta do... It's easier and it's more practical. Ted Vasilev, people. That's right. You just heard it from there. A wealth of knowledge. Ted, you've been fantastic. Thank you for sharing your knowledge of art, of champagne. Check out DTR Modern Galleries. Um, DTR Modern on Instagram. I've actually, on, on my own Instagram, I've, I've actually represented his own artist, uh, Halim Flowers, uh, who is an extraordinary artist who he also represents. But he has, literally, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the largest gallery operation on the East Coast of the USA. Uh, and it really is mind-blowing, not to mention the owner of WineAdvise.com. So check it all out and have a look. And thank you so much, Ted, for sharing. I mean, what, I, mean I, w I wish this was an in-person podcast like we used to do, and I look forward to getting back to those days, in which case we'll invite you back again, because Tom and I both want to try the Paul Roger. It's very funny. It's very funny. I had exactly the same thought earlier on in this podcast. It's exactly the same thought Nice just said. That we used to we used to be able to sit together and you know literally have a drink together and have a chat. The Zoom thing, I thought it's the first time I thought this earlier on in this podcast. I was like, well, 
you know, it's a real pity we can't just actually, well, it's probably because of the champagne first quality of the drinks you're drinking. I'm looking, I'm looking forward in uh, seeing you in person, guys. And Nigel, when I came, unlike you, I was well prepared. So I have a case of Vef uh, Kusama. So you're going to have a present for me. The, bot, the, the box is beautiful and it's a collectible. Amazing. Amazing. Fantastic. Look at you. Smart man. No surprise there. Ted, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. What a Cheers. pleasure. Thank Everybody. you, everybody, for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Next time. Big year. Cheers, cheers, cheers. That's Shaken and Stirred, people. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya. 